This morning I want us to look at this line that if you read through our bylaws, you'll see, and it's, it's one of these things that's it's so critically important to what it looks like for us to be a governed body, to be a led body. And so if you look at this line, this is what it says. It says that Ridgecrest is ruled by Jesus, led by the elders, and governed by the congregation. We are ruled by Jesus. We're not ruled by anybody else. Our elders don't rule, and our congregation sure as heck isn't ruling. We are ruled by one person. It is King Jesus seated upon his throne. Amen? Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're going to break that out of what it looks like for us to be ruled by Jesus, led by the elders, and then governed by the congregation. Well, let's start in Ephesians 1. Any church which doesn't rightly recognize the authority of Jesus in leading the church is a church that's headed towards ruin. It's going to ruin itself, and it's likely going to ruin the lives of the people that have the great misfortune of attending that church. We have to recognize that we are ruled by Jesus. We find ourselves in humble submission to him, both as elders and the laity. Everyone, everyone in the church has to be ruled by Jesus for us to be a Christian church. And so we want to recognize what that means, what that looks like, and, and how we begin to build that. Look at Ephesians 1. Paul has been talking in verses 1 through 13 about how Jesus is found in all things. He is the kind of, he's tied up in our salvation before we were, were ever born. All these things are supposed to be to his praise and his glory and his honor. And then we find out in verse 19 that the power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead dwells within inside the Christian. But listen to what he says here, speaking of that power. He says it's that same power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head. Everybody say, Jesus is the head. He gave him his head over all things to the church. And look, we find out here, which is his body. Everybody say, the church is his body. Jesus is the head and the church is his body. And look what it says here. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church finds itself coming in submission to Jesus who rules far above all. And so Paul has this amazing statement where he describes, he says, he's above uh, every name that's to be named. He is the head. The church is his body. And so what does the body do? The body follows the direction of the head. And so whatever the head says, whatever way the head leads, the body has to follow. The body can do nothing else other than follow the direction given to it by the head. And so no church body can set its own course outside of a recognition of who Jesus is. Because if we set a course irrespective of who Jesus is, his role to play in our lives, in the life of our church, we're headed towards ruin. We have to understand this. Jesus Christ has to be recognized as ruling. Now one of the things that we find over and over and over again is that we're happy to give this tacit endorsement of it. King Jesus rules. King Jesus rules. And then we spend six days acting like that has no bearing. And that's a truth that we find worked out, not just among laity, but it's an unfortunate truth we find out worked out among pastors, among elders. And so what we have to understand is that this litmus test, this rule of fellowship 
has to daily, moment by moment, constantly exalt King Jesus as the ruler of all things. In the church, our lives, both leaders and laity, finding ourselves in submission to him. And so we are a church ruled by Jesus. And he, him, he in fact, is the head of the church. And the church is just his body. Paul says it here. He says it again in Ephesians 4.15. Flip over to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Let's continue to read about what it means to be ruled by Jesus and who he is. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, penned these words in chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Jesus, he said, He is the image of the invisible God. We recognize that God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like man, and so what we see in Jesus is that he displays the invisible God. Jesus shows us demonstrably what God is like. He displays God. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that is made has been made by Jesus. Everything that is made has been made by Jesus. The church exists because of Jesus. Everything you see and everything you don't see exists on the basis of Jesus and who he is. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything coheres because of Jesus. Molecules stay together because of Jesus. Our bodies don't just fall apart, although some of our bodies are falling apart. True enough. But our, our, our bodies stay together. My skin is, is staying on. My muscles are, are staying attached. Everything, this air that I'm breathing is keeping me alive because of Jesus' active work. Less for the active work of Jesus in our midst, in our lives, and in our world. Everything would fall apart. All things cohere. All things hold together because of Jesus and who he is. They all hold together. And again, we read this instructive principle. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Historically, we look both within our denomination and outside, and we recognize that where the church goes wrong is when the church takes its eyes off of Jesus and it puts it on anything else. It puts it on the social gospel of Walter Rauschenbusch, and it seeks to be invested in the community, to do all these good things in the community. It leaves Jesus hanging out in the church. It gets so invested in the church that it, that, it, that it rids itself of the investment of being involved and making a difference in its community and thereby disregarding Jesus' instruction to the church to be salt and light. We've got to be both. We've got to be active in here and engaged in out there. Why? Not so that, that God would be pleased with us and usher us into heaven, but because God is pleased with Jesus and Jesus calls us to do these things and we want to be people humbly being transformed by who Jesus is day in and day out. He is the head and we must keep our eyes focused on him. He's the head of all things. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. What we recognize here in this wonderful passage in, in, in Colossians is this dual point. He's pointing on the one hand towards, toward Christ's crucifixion. This is what God did. He looked down upon humanity and he found us wayward. He found us disinterested. He found us ugly and mired in sin. Ephesians 2 says it this way, that we were sinning and we liked it, that we were dead and we didn't care, that we had internal, external, and supernatural influences keeping us in this place. And what God did was in the midst of this, in the midst of your stench, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of being like a pig and wallowing in it and saying, look at me how ugly I am and I love it. This is what we see there, that God sent his son Jesus, lovely, perfect, sinless, to take on the form of flesh, to come in human likeness, and to live a perfectly sinless life. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin, and so he came and he lived amongst creation. He lived amongst those who created him. And at the end of his life, he took on your sin. He took on all the punishment for your sin. Both those things you have actively already done and all those things that you will do in the future. Just think about that for a moment. The Son of God, perfect, sinless, coming in human form, the form of a servant, and humbling himself, as we read about in Philippians 2, to the point of death, and then Paul describes it, he says, even death on a cross. That because God is holy and just, his justice demands that he, he punish evil, that he punish sin. And so Jesus stood in our stead and he said, Justin and Matt and Dee and Mike and Ken and Philip and Steve would all be obliterated by God's wrath and by his justice. And so Jesus, perfect, sinless Jesus, stood in our stead and he took on the wrath of God upon the cross of Calvary. So God actively poured out his wrath upon Jesus. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. For three days he remained in the tomb. And then by the power of God, God raised him from the dead. And he sits forevermore high and exalted. This is the Jesus that rules the church. It's not the Jesus of moral influence, this guy that came and lived a really wonderful life and did a lot of really good things for people that didn't deserve it. And so we're encouraged by watching his life whereby we might look at Gandhi's life or look at Mother Teresa's life or look at uh, Granny Harper's life and say, man, I'm really encouraged. She's done some amazing things. I really want to follow and have my life be like that. No. The Jesus of moral influence may change the way that you act outwardly, but the Jesus of Calvary's cross can change the way you are inwardly. Do you understand? We have to be a people who are ruled by Jesus, a people who are so completely transformed by who he is that our lives desire to live out radical obedience to him. We need to be a people ruled by Jesus. Flip over to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. John has had this amazing vision of Jesus. said he saw him standing there with a long robe and a white golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held the seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength john has this amazing vision of jesus there in revelation one and what does he do when he sees him he falls down. 
The text tells us that John fell down as though dead. This is what happened. John thought because he had seen Jesus, beheld him as he is, that he deserved to die. He recognized that Jesus is so holy, so high, so exalted, that he can't possibly have encountered him and survive. But we find in this moment, Jesus displays this profound moment of of service to John, of kindness to John. John says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. For I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Only one is described in Scripture as having the keys of death and Hades. It is Jesus Christ who has overcome the grave. This is why you'll find that in any church you're ever a part of, ultimately, the elders, the pastors, the bishops, the, the apostle, great kumbah, yah, whatever they refer to themselves as, will always fail you. If you set your eyes on them, if you set your eyes on me and look to me to be a model for you, you're going to base your life solely on those things you see Matt do and you're never going to engage in scripture. You're always going to be disappointed. You don't believe me? Ask my wife. Better yet, don't. You're always going to be disappointed. I don't care who your pastor is. I don't care who your elders are. If you looked at these men and expect perfection, you're always going to be disappointed. And you're, all, you're never going to be a part of a church where you can be satisfied. Always look to Jesus. Always look to Jesus. We want to look to be ruled. We want to look to be owned. We want to look to be directed by King Jesus. Amen? Everybody say, we are ruled by Jesus. Amen. Amen. Flip to Acts 20. Acts 20, this this serves as this great bridge between we are ruled by Jesus and we are led by the elders. In verse 17 of chapter 20, Paul is calling for the elders of the church at Ephesus. He's calling for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come to him. And he offers them some instruction. And what we see in verse 28 is he gives them this incredibly wise, prescient piece of instruction. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And so he calls on them, on the one hand, to look inwardly. To evaluate themselves and say, is my heart beating for God or is my heart beating for pride? Is my heart being poured out as an offering on the altar of praise to God and and seeking to lead, to guide, to usher people, to love them well? And so they're evaluating self. He says, look to the flock. And so they look out at the flock and they see people and they say, okay, Jim Bob's an alcoholic. This person struggles with this. This person struggles with that. How can I best minister to them? How can I connect them to somebody else who has already journeyed through this sin, this stronghold, this struggle in their life, and can help them to overcome it? How can I link older men with younger men? How can I link older women with younger women? How can I uh, direct singles to these great godly people that they might aspire to be a great godly servant of God, that whether they marry or not, they live a fully fulfilled life honoring King Jesus each and every day? And so the elder's turning, and and, and they're looking to their flock. So he says, look inwardly, look outwardly. Look at this key distinctive. He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. 
wants them to understand their task. Wants them to understand their task and whereby they have found themselves serving and being appointed. Notice this isn't what he says. Where the Holy Spirit's arm was twisted behind its back and a bunch of really powerful people got together and now you rule over them with an iron fist. It doesn't say that in mine. I got the extra special version, the ESV. It doesn't say that in there. It doesn't say it in good King Jimmy's version either. And so we have to understand that the Holy Spirit has worked to bring about change, wrought change, placed a call on each one of these men's lives and has brought them into this role. Any ability or any, any, any desire in them to shortchange the process, to hide or obfuscate sin in their lives will ultimately lead to their ruin and it'll be miserable for the church and all those around them. So he writes to them, he says, look inwardly, look outwardly. Recognize the Holy Spirit had its hand upon your life to bring you into this role, to bring you into this capacity. And then he has this stunning statement here at the end of it, the end of verse 28. It is this church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Can I tell you, there's a horrible temptation to view success in the church as being personal success. And to view failure in the church as personal failure. So I'm speaking to you men who are going to serve as elders, and I'm speaking to my own heart, telling you this. Success in the church, true success in the church, is only ever spirit wrought. If it's brought about by your sheer weight of personality, by your finances, by your talents, by any of your abilities, it will fail. It will crumble around you, and it has zero eternal significance. What he gets into here at the end is he he reminds them the church is established and assured by the blood of Jesus. He purchased it, he preserves it, and he keeps it on into the future. We've got to recognize that we are a people ruled by Jesus. But what does that begin to look like amongst uh, a people? Do do we all get some type of equal say? Is this just a pure democracy where we all throw our hands up in the air? And I I, I say, I want uh, the same whatever color carpet this is for here into uh, the rest of my life. And somebody says, I want chartreuse. And and somebody else gets a phone out and they're like, what? I don't even know what chartreuse is. What does that look like? Siri, chartreuse. And Siri says, you want to call Chartreuse? And, and my question is, why do you have a friend named Chartreuse? And, and I've never met her. It is a her, right? Okay. We need to be a, a church that is ruled by Jesus, but we need to be a church that is also led by the elders. Flip to 1 Timothy 3. I want us to talk in first in, in terms of, of requirement. Paul, in two places in particular, gives us really strict requirements for what these men need to be like in their personal lives. And since the moment we opened up to you an opportunity to nominate those men you would have served, you'll notice that on that nomination form, you had to indicate that you thought these men had those things in their lives, and then you also had to write an indication of why you thought they would be good in this body. And then over the months that we met with these men, we just hammered them. Do you have this in your life? Do you see this in your life? We met with them and their wives. Does your husband have this in his life? Do you see this in his life? Is there any sin in you that we have to know about now? If you were to serve in this capacity and something were to be known about you, would it bring shame upon this body in the name of Jesus? 
So I want, to, I want you to understand what these men have to display in their lives. And the way that I read this, the way this is laid out, these are present tense uh, things. And so what we, what we recognize is a failure to persevere in these things may invalidate them from further service in this role. And so when we have this understanding of Acts 20 and verse 28, when they recognize in themselves pride welling up, what it should be for them is a heart check that says, i got to step back, I can't serve until I get my heart in line. When they begin to recognize that their family is running and, and all these things are going crazy, it's a heart check for them. It should be a heart check for them primarily where they say, my family, I've got to give some priority to my family. I, I, I've slipped up at home. Things aren't going the way that they should. I need to step back. And hopefully they would have a loving body that would come alongside them and say, I see this in you, and it gives me pause. Could we love each other that much? Could we love each other that much that we will be moved by love, not by judgment, not by hatred, not by a self-exalted sense of self? Could we love each other enough to graciously go to our brother and say, man, I see pride in you. It terrifies me. I don't know. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So right off the bat, he's saying, look, you've got to want it, and you've got to know it's a good thing. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. When you think of them, when you think of their lives, there can't be this thing that automatically pops in. We would say, okay, well, it's Jim Bob, and you say, Jim Bob is a drunk. Like, it can't be him. He stole money from everybody in town, and then when he went back and stole some more, when we think about them, there can't be this automatic thing that pops into our head. And if there is, why have you not gone to them yet? They've got to be above reproach. They've got to be a husband of one wife. There can be no no distance between them and their spouse. He's not talking about divorce. He's not talking about polygamy. He's talking about intensity of devotion. He's saying that your heart for your spouse beats for her and for her alone, and it does this each and every day. You love your wife, and she knows it. There is no question in her mind that she is the only woman for you. There is no split of affections, be it your occupation, your hobbies, or yourself. Your wife has to receive the full measure of your devotion. And to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. These men are tasked with the leading of the church. If they are unable to teach, if they're unable to open the word and say, thus says the Lord, then they're not eligible to serve in the office of elder. This is not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Watch this. He shows the home as the proving, proving ground for ministry. He says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, Paul writing to Titus has very much the same list, but he has some slightly different distinctions. So flip over a couple of pages to Titus. Titus 1, 5 through 9 is really where this whole list is fanned out. 
But when we get into verse 8, we recognize that there are some decided different uh, things that show up in this list. And I want us to hone in on one in particular. The list begins, he said, they need to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright. But we find ourselves stopping and pausing. It says they have to be holy. Holiness is such an all-encompassing category to be demanded to be displayed in the lives of the elders should find them being completely overwhelmed and absolutely humble. If someone were to walk up to you and say, "Uh, Ross, can you tell me, do you find yourself to be a holy person? Ross should be choking on his tongue. If I should go to Steve and say, Steve, do you find yourself to be a holy person? Janice should be like driving the elbow into his ribs. Say no. Say no. If we were to go to Carol B and say, Carol B, do you find yourself to be a holy person? She should be just shouting, nothing, nothing inside me is holy. But what we found is when we're looking at 1 Peter, that it is the call not just upon the elders, but it's the call upon all of us to be holy. And it's this tremendous grace of God that he has made us holy by the blood of Jesus. So in 1 Peter, we see that we're no longer to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Holiness is not produced by stopping things or beginning things. So if you're heavily invested in some sin, you have some sin that you're not able to let go of, the holiness of God is not attained by the ceasing of that sin. No more than the holiness of God be attained by the incorporation of Bible reading, of fasting, of prayer. Holiness, holiness is only ever gained through the blood of Jesus and time spent with God. He is making you holy. This is the plan and purpose of God over a lifetime, to make you holy. This is the great aspiration it should be for every Christian. It's not that when you die that your name be known. It's not that so that you can give a lot of money and build a wing. None of these things. It's not even primarily that your family be raised up and to do well and find great success. The aspiration for every Christian is that we would be being made daily each and every hour and every moment into the image of God, that his holiness will be displayed in our life. Amen? That God's holiness will be displayed in our lives, that we would find ourselves being transformed and changed. Why? Time spent with God makes you holy. We continue to spend time with God, and he's revealing those things that we need to remove from our lives so that we might have closer fellowship with him. And and understand this, he is the one making you holy, not your changing of behavior, either through incorporation or through a removal of process. God is the one making us holy. While we're in 1 Peter, look at chapter 5. As we begin to turn in this idea of, of, of how this works. 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter writes to them as an apostle, and he says, look, I'm also serving as an elder, and this is what I want you to understand. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he gives us some explanation for how that is done. 
He says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. And so he comes to these elders. He said, look, you want to serve in this. And one of the things that he requires in this list is you can't be doing this because somebody told you it was a good idea. You can't be involved in this process because somebody told you it was a good idea and they are lording this over you. All you got to serve is this. All you got to do this. Your mom has always told you, she's always said, you're such a sweet little boy. Someday you're going to grow up to be a pastor. You're such a a kind little boy. Someday you're going to grow up to to tell people all about Jesus because you're going to serve as a pastor. Anyone that thinks that that growing up and serving in the role of elder is some type of great fulfillment for their parents is going to disappoint not just their parents, but is acting in direct disobedience to God. You can't do it because you feel like you're under compulsion. One of the things we find is we have this terrific spirit of volunteerism. That when we see something that needs to be done, we jump in and we jump in with both feet and we recognize this is the deep end and I'm wearing weights and I can't swim. The process of volunteerism is horrible for the church when it comes to someone serving as an elder. You don't serve as an elder because you can't think of anything better to do or because you don't see anybody serving in it. You serve as an elder in the church because God has so burdened your heart to be obedient to him, service to him in this capacity. You can't do it under compulsion. He says you need to exercise oversight willingly as God would have you. And look what he goes on to say, not for shameful game. Uh, let me just go ahead and clear this up. The lay elders are not getting paid. Not getting paid. And so that was one of the first questions that one of the candidates asked. And so they said, how often do I get free lunch? And I said, friend, there is no such thing as a free lunch. I didn't say that, but it would have been a great time to use that line if they had asked that question. You understand? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Look what he says here. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When an elder begins to understand, truly understand, internalize and process what it is to be ruled by Jesus, there is no place for a domineering attitude, personality, or demonstration within their lives. This idea of domineering is, is finding people, and so I'm going to use Justin because I've never actually seen him sin. And so if, if I see Justin, I don't know. And so if I see Justin out and I'm just lording authority over him and I'm directing him and pulling him to do this, do this, don't do that, don't do this, and I am and thoroughly using my position to direct all the affairs of his life, that is domineering in his life. That's being domineering. If I find myself playing this, this cosmic game of whack-a-mole where I see a sin pop up in your life and I slap it down. and I, Oh, look, I see you over here. And I come over and I slap it down. Oh, oh, good. And I just slap it down. I am seeking to be domineering. I am seeking to be controlling. And I'm also seeking to play the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. We can't do that. The elders are never introduced to any church to serve the role as, as keeping people from sinning. Woo! Thankful. Hashtag praise God. Right? There's lots of you. If I was going to spend my days trying to keep you from sinning just on like one social media platform, I'm putting in for overtime. That's all there is to it. Not domineering. We're called to, to lead by example, n- not this, this heavy-handed system of oversight where they're, they're weighing in on all the minutiae of your life. 
if one of you comes to me and says, man, I'm thinking about making a job transition, would you weigh in on this? Would you give me some insight? I am so happy to do this. But it's not my task to be so heavily invested in all the different affairs of your life that I'm giving you input into the decisions that you're not soliciting input in. And recognize there's a balance there. If we see repeated pathways and following where you're engaged in sinful behavior, we will move to address that. But prayerfully, hopefully, graciously, God will be lifting up one of your friends or your spouse or your child, and they will be the first people to talk to you, to tell you, I see this in your life, and it shouldn't be there. Can't domineer. We have to lead by example. Why do we have to lead by example? Elders, what they're doing is they are, they are setting the pace for what it is to follow Jesus well. Any example that they set before the congregation should only be the example of follow me as I follow Jesus. Always pointing at the fact that we are ruled by Jesus. And the way the elders lead is by directing people always back to Jesus. Don't look at me. Don't look at Justin. Don't look at Ken. Don't look at anybody else in here and say, how is my life compared to them Always, only, ever look to Jesus. This is a tremendous comfort to those who would serve as elder and a terrific encouragement and directive for all the others, the lady of the church. Flip to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 brings both groups together in this really explicit statement. To the laity, it responds and says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. If you trust the elders of any church you're a part of, then you should have no problem submitting to the God-given authority that he invested in them for your sake. This is what he's calling us to, laity. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Why? He goes on and he says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. All those serving as elders recognize this. We've been through this many times now. There will come a day when each man who serves in the office of elder will stand before God and have to give an account. So God will say, do you remember Thursday, March the 13th, when this whiny widow came into your office and you're like, oh, you were watching the whiny widow? The fact that you referred to her as the whiny widow says you remember. We're going to have to give an account to everything. All those people that are easy to spend time with, the people, and you know who you are, that are difficult to spend time with, the nervous laughter portrayed you. Now everybody knows. Going to have to give an account to how we engaged, how we shepherded those that are easy, who are lovely, and who are wonderful, who never get sick, and always are just a joy to be around, and those who are always sick, terrible to be around, and only ever a drain on us and everybody around them. There is no distinction. There's no choosing. I would rather invest heavily in this person than that person. We have to give an account for all these things. So he says, obey them. Why? Because sometimes God's going to have to, they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for how they did, how they were faithful in this role, keeping watch over your souls. 
But look what he says to the lady. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Some of you are awful. I've been trying to think of a better word. That's as good as I got. Some of you are awful. You're absolutely loved by Jesus, but you're really just very terrible people to be around. I'm not supposed to lie from up here. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you want from me. Listen to me. Listen to me. The elders are going to stand before Jesus someday, and they're going to talk about how it was to serve you awful, terrible people. And I'm not trying to make eye contact with anybody. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Certainly not my family on this side. They're going to have to give an account. God's going going to tell them, either well done, good and faithful servant, or I saw them too, and I had nobody. He did a good job. Come on in. But you're going to have to give in response too. I feel very, very fortunate. I, I was just kidding earlier. I feel very fortunate to pastor such an amazing church filled with such wonderful, spirited people that love Jesus, that serve him well, that humble themselves before him all the time. I really do. I feel very blessed in that. But I want you to understand something. Just as the elders are going to have to stand before God and give an account, so too will you. Every act of rebellion, every act of disobedience, every, every wayward thought, everything you do to try and upset the apple cart and get your way, you will have to give a response to. We are ruled by Jesus. And the rule of Jesus holds sway over the elder's heart and it holds sway over the heart of the laity. He's calling us all for radical investment of our lives in his kingdom, in his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. I think probably the last and most difficult component of this, it's, it's easy in some sense to recognize that we are ruled by Jesus. And, and, and we find a, a ready testimony to the fact that we are led by the elders. But congregational rule or congregational authority is one of these things that for us, or for many of us, is almost an outgrowth of what it is to be an American. And so you read the Constitution or you, you vote in an election and you say, okay, I get it. Because this is this and, and this grew out of this. And so uh, uh, when's early voting? Like I like to go to lunch uh, at lunchtime. I don't like to stick around for business meetings. And when's early voting? We recognize that this idea of what it is to be governed by the congregation is not an outgrowth of Americanism, but it is something articulated, well-described within the confines of Scripture. And so we have to understand this. We have to understand where it, come from, where it comes from. And that it's not this pure democracy where we all just raise our hands and we all just, just vote on everything, but it is this spirit rot, what it is to, to govern and govern under the rulership of Jesus. Look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, what we recognize within just a couple of passages here within Matthew is that Jesus entrusts, in some sense, the preservation or the fidelity of the congregation to the congregation both invalidating the genuineness of somebody's confession and also 
recognizing when somebody is not living up to their confession and removing them from the church. And so the subject of church discipline. But look at Matthew 16. Jesus meeting the disciples and he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Really what he's getting at is nobody has any clue. This is the disciples' response. So Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter has this this famed response, he says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in, in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. In heaven. And so, this, this strange statement about binding and loosing in the keys. And Jesus does not go on there to explain it, but what we see again is that it shows up within this famed discussion of church discipline. But before we get to Matthew 18, I want to explain something to you for those of you who are not aware. When the gospel authors sought to write scripture, most of them are not writing events solely chronologically. And so there are chronological elements to it, but there's also a, a form and a process where they're putting a certain teaching here and a teaching below it, and then in the middle they're going to highlight something. And I think that's what's happening here on this subject of church discipline. Before we get into this famous passage on church discipline, look at what uh, precedes it, just immediately precedes it. It's this parable of the lost sheep. Jesus speaking says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven... There are angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. Look what Jesus says. He says, so it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so what we recognize before we ever begin this discussion on church discipline, is that Jesus is absolutely captivated and interested in seeking those who go astray. Some of you have been hurt. Some of you have been wounded by the church, and you are bitter, and in some sense, rightly so. But it's time to lay aside your bitterness. It's time to lay aside your hurt. It's time to forgive. It's time to move on. Just because you've been done wrong by the people of the church does not make the church any less his body purchased by his blood and worthy for you to follow him as the head. Jesus rules the church. Having this teaching, Jesus goes in. So we have this understanding of going after, radically seeking after those who would go astray. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's my brother-in-law is here today. And so if Brian sins against me and I go to him and say, why did you slash my tires? That was not a very kind thing. And he says, you're right, I shouldn't have slashed your tires. Man, I'm sorry. We, we, we hug it out. And he buys me a new tire. I'm just saying, <laughs> the hug's nice, but that tire's expensive. 
And so if this is the process we go through, and so he has some rampant sin in his life, or any of you have some rampant sin in your life, and a brother goes to you and says, Justin, you need to give this up, Ron, you need to give this up, James, you need to give this up, and he turns back, the scripture tells us you've won a brother. But if he says no, scripture gives you an account, says this is what you do. You take one, you take two more, and you go back to them. Why? Because you're following this example of what it's like to go after the one. The 99th stage, you're following scripture's example to go after the one. You're begging, you're pleading, I love you, let go of this sin, come back to the church, come back, come back home. Don't let this drive you away, don't let this lead you somewhere else, don't sever your relationships. Come back. He says, if he refuses, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. And then we find this phrase come back. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two or three of you uh, agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What we recognize is this discussion of church. It is the laity, the congregation's responsibility to govern the church well by bringing in truly regenerate followers of Jesus Christ and removing those who refuse to follow him anymore. Here's this odd statement there. He says, church, to you, to you congregation, to you followers of Jesus, that this person should be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We don't really understand this. We don't really have a category for this. But what we do have a category and an understanding of is recognizing who said these words. Jesus. If Jesus said these words, then it is instructive that it is a requirement for us to ask ourselves, how then did Jesus model interaction with Gentiles and tax collectors? Did he shun them or did he love them? He loved them. He loved them radically to the point when people looked at Jesus, they said he is a glutton and a drunkard, and he is a friend of sinners. And what we should say is absolutely, amen. We are a friend of sinners, ourselves being some of the foremost. What we recognize in this is if the congregation votes, moves, decides to remove a brother or sister from this fellowship, we follow the example of Jesus. We search hard for them. We long to bring them back, and we double down on our investment in their lives. There is no shunning. There is no cutting off. There is no, you're dead to me. There is, I love you. Jesus loves you, and we continue to pour our lives out to them, even though it will be difficult. Do you understand? Lest we get messed up on this. On the other side of this great teaching on church discipline, which is absolutely the work of the congregation and never the work of the elders. Church discipline is always the purview of the congregation and never the elders. They may be involved in the process, but it is the responsibility of the congregation. Look at the other side of this. We go after them. This is what church discipline looks like. Peter asked this question. Lord, how often will I forgive my brother if he sins against me? 
As many as seven times, feeling some sense of of self-exaltedness, Jesus says, no, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And so he begins to tell this story of the unforgiving servant. And what we recognize in this story is that we need to continue to be forgiving, we need to continue to extend forgiveness, and why? Because forgiveness is captivated, well displayed, in the heart of God, in the person of Jesus. And if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be ruled by Jesus, then we as congregants, lay people, need to be quick to extend forgiveness to all those who hurt us. If we be quick to extend forgiveness to all those who've hurt us, we would see tremendous resurgence in church growth. Why? Because people would quit hopping. They would recognize that people around them are going to disappoint them, they're going to hurt their feelings, but they're no less worthy of God's goodness, grace, and mercy than are they. Amen? We need to be a people quick to go after those who leave. We need to be a people quick to move to recognize the importance of preserving the body in church discipline, always looking to Jesus, his rule, his guidance, and his direction, and be a people who are quick to forgive and to extend grace and mercy to those around us. And look what he's also extended to the church. The church has the right, the purview of church discipline. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we see this. 1 Corinthians is a book written to the laity of the church. It's not written to the elders of the church. And what we find in 1 Corinthians 5 is that they have gross immorality. We get into chapter 5, and Paul writes, he says, it's actually reported uh, that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So guys are this stepmom. And so Paul writes to them, in his mind, I'm sure, is just exploding and thinking, how in the world is this displaying the gospel? How in the world is this displaying what it is to be ruled, to be led, to be directed in all things to find yourselves in submission to who Jesus is. Look at chapter 5 and verses 4 and 5. It says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's describing in some sense church discipline. He's got to be removed. This immorality described in this church in Corinth is so egregious, so vile, that Paul says, the pagans in your community wouldn't even tolerate this, but you guys fully endorse it. Nobody's willing to invest themselves in this guy's life. He's got to be removed. He's got to be removed so that we might see him come around. Let's look at the second part of this story, 2 Corinthians. You see, a lot of commentators think that when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul is weighing back in on this controversy. See, Paul wrote to that church in Corinth and he told them you need to remove this guy, you need to get him out of the church, he's a cancer in the church. He never thought they would do it. One of the reasons we see congregations have, one of the reasons we see that congregations have failed in church discipline is because it is painful. It goes right against kind of this church growth movement of of bright lights, uh, exciting music, um, a level parking lot, I don't know. And so, hey, know your context. And so one of the reasons that we see that it hasn't worked is, what if we hurt somebody's feelings in this endeavor? What if we tolerate sin, give Jesus a bad name, and this person never learns what it is to repent? 
We have to care enough about one another, and we have to find ourselves in submission enough to Jesus, his rule, his reign, that we would move in love to, as graciously as possible, extend and bring church discipline upon someone. So Paul writes to this church, and he says, in essence, I can't believe you did it. I can't believe you did it. Verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment, look what he says here, by the majority is enough. How did Paul recognize there was a majority of people? Somehow, some way, a vote was cast. Head knobs, amen, yo-yo, stand up, sit down, slap the person beside you. Somehow, a vote was cast to the point where Paul recognized a majority of the people recognized that he had to go, which means that a small percentage of the people said, no, let's not do this. Paul said, you met, a majority is enough. Look what he instructs them. He said, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Church discipline isn't about cutting people off and having nothing left to do with them. What we see in this example is that Paul has written to a people dealing with an incredibly difficult sin, a public sin, a disgusting sin, and they removed this guy. And now he has come back and confessed sin and wants to get right before God and this body. And what does Paul tell them? He says, I beg you, let him back in. It is the responsibility of a congregation governing well, both to move in church discipline and to, to move in public restoration. Let's, let's look at one more place, Galatians 1. Just as the church is, is supposed to move and work to the preservation of the body, the integrity of the body, the fidelity of its membership and movement of regenerate church membership, that people who are members are actually Christians. I don't know why this is a novel idea for us. Chapter 1 and verse 6 through 9, what we recognize is just as that they're to move in that vein, so too it is the responsibility of the congregation to ensure that what is taught is doctrinally sound. It's the responsibility of the elders to teach, but it's the responsibility of the congregation to hear what is taught and to evaluate it in line with the word. Does it sound good? That doesn't matter. Does it sound like the word? That's what matters. Do you understand? And so Paul writes to this church in Galatia, and what he recognizes is that they are failing in this endeavor. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly are deserting him who called you out of the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he has this stern word. He says, even if we or an angel of the Lord come to you and they teach a false gospel, do not receive it. He says, let them be accursed. Last thing we recognize in the church is it is the responsibility of the congregation, the congregant, you, layperson, pew sitter. It's your responsibility to test the word spoken, to make sure that the word spoken finds accordance with the word written. Do you understand me? This is your job, this is your task. To be a part of a church is to find yourself invested in this job. 
the congregant is an incredibly important and vital role in the future and the health of the church. I hear people joke all the time and say, church would be great if it weren't for all the people. My church would be great if it weren't for all the people. Recognizing that the people have their problems and, and some of their problems have spouses and some of their spouses are problems. But what we find in this is that it's absolutely your responsibility. The elders teach, they instruct, and they lead. But as all of us find our place under the rulership and, and guidance and direction in his reign, Christ's reign, we all find ourselves serving our role. There is no place scripturally for the lazy congregant. There's just no place for it scripturally. For some reason, within the American construct of understanding of church, it used to be that if somebody came to church three out of four Sundays, they were, con- they were considered a frequent attender or an active member. Somehow now within our vernacular, that slipped for the really exceptional person to two Sundays out of the month. But for the average person, once a month, once every other month. This is your role. This is your task. This is what he's called you to. Active investment in the body. Not in frequent attendance. Not doing whatever you want to do. Can I just tell you something? If you have a hobby that repeatedly takes you out of church on Sundays, you should consider taking vacation to to explore your hobby. If your hobby means that much to you, you get two, three weeks of vacation, you should explore taking some vacation to explore your hobby. Your role in the church under God requires your attendance. It requires an active investment from you and not just sending money. Do you understand? It requires your active attendance. No, there are weekends that are going to take us out and nobody's tracking role and saying, oh, man, did you recognize they were out? Uh, three Sundays last year. Let's give them a demerit. Let all their air out of their tires and burn their house to the ground. I think that pretty much covers it. Nobody's advocating that. But if we're going to take seriously our role to be invested in the church and understand that it's the responsibility of the congregation to govern and then you wouldn't be here, there's no place for that in Scripture. There's no category for understanding that. It requires all of us, as we recognize that Jesus rules and reigns in our lives, that he is directing some of us to lead and some of us to govern and be heavily invested in this. You cannot test the orthodoxy of what's taught if you're not here. Do you understand that? Let's look at this last thing in Hebrews 13. Let's tie them both together. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. This is great benediction. He says, now may the peace of God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. We are ruled by Jesus. It is his blood that saves us, and it's his rule that reigns in our lives and in our church. And may that blood equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The blood of Jesus saves us. We are ruled by Jesus. The blood of Jesus calls the elders to lead well, and the blood of Jesus and the power of his covenant 
calls the congregation for active involvement in all the ministries of the church. At Ridgecrest, we are a church that is ruled by Jesus, led by the elders, and governed by the congregation. We've got to all play our role. We've got to serve our part because we are ruled, one and all, by King Jesus.